You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 92. This week we have two guests, Lika Guhatakurta and Ryan McGranigan. They talk to us about how data science is changing heliophysics. That's the study of our sun and how it and other stars affect their solar systems. They explain how a new data-rich approach to this research is even extending heliophysics into a new frontier, the study of exoplanets. Lika is the lead program scientist for new initiatives in the Exploration Technology Directorate at NASA Ames. And Ryan joins us from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where he's a postdoctoral researcher. But let's get right to it and listen to Lika Guhatakurta and Ryan McGranigan. Thanks, guys, for joining us for this episode today. Lika, I know you've been on the podcast before, so we had the chance to hear your backstory and all about how you got to NASA and your current position. Uh, but Ryan, you're new to us. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got to NASA? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on today. And um, I've been at NASA JPL for right out a year now, and I've been here in the position of a postdoc researcher studying the field of heliophysics. Physics and, of the um, sun, is that what you're into? That's right, yeah, physics awesome. of the sun. Uh, not only our sun, but uh, the sun of of any any system, any solar system. Okay, so and, star, um, star physics, is that what that means? That's right. Cool, okay, go on. And so before this, I have been kind of bouncing around, um, really interested in kind of exploring all aspects of this field. And so I, I did my graduate work, my PhD at the University of Colorado in mm -hmm. Boulder. And after that, I was really fortunate to be able to take a position, temporary position at Dartmouth College in a faculty role where I could create and offer a course in data assimilation and data science, essentially, for graduate students. Um, and so that was a really cool experience where I got to work with a multidisciplinary group of space physicists, of engineers, applied mathematicians, statisticians, computer scientists, um, and it was really wonderful and it gave me this new understanding of what I wanted to do, which was mm -hmm. bring these different groups together to study this system. Yeah, um, That's And cool. so JPL was a really nice next step for me to come here because they have just a, a wonderful community of multidisciplinary people who are experts in each of these areas. Yeah, that sounds like the perfect fit. And I think a lot of research is like that these days, isn't it? It's it's no longer just, I'm, I'm a physicist, I work with other physicists, right? That's right, yeah. I mean, anywhere you look, people are grappling with these same problems where a new generation of problems are presented in their field and they kind of require different levels and different areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think it's really kind of a universal thing. Right, yeah. And also universal is data, right? There's so much data produced these days, and you guys have to figure out how to crunch those numbers and what you can learn from them, right? Right. Um, heliophysics is, is actually somewhat unique in that respect and and just how broad and heterogeneous and complex the data that we have to bring together is. Huh. Uh, and it's really interesting trying to understand how we work in the field now in bringing these different data sets together and then how new innovative techniques from the, this budding field of data science can be brought in to kind of revolutionize and evolve our current methods to mm -hmm. 
increased discoverability. Yeah, I see. Do you agree with that, Lika? Oh, well, absolutely. Actually, I'm kind of curious to hear another uh, take from Ryan. So I think I first sort of uh, became aware of Ryan through a TED Talk oh, uh, is that, right? that he gave <laughs> on a program that I managed and shaped for 15 years, Living with the Star. What an appropriate huh. name. And he gave really a fabulous um, mm-hmm. sort of TED Talk. And I guess I do not know. I think it's after that, right? Uh, Ryan, you also got the AD Fellowship, correct? That That's right. Like, and thanks for the, the kind words about the talk. That was a, really a, a fun experience where I got to speak on this huge stage about the importance of space weather, ah. um, these different variations going on in space that are so important to each of us every day, huh. and people were surprisingly unaware of these effects. Yeah, tell us a um, little bit about those. What do you mean by space weather? Space weather is really interesting. Um, basically, Earth sits in this kind of, and to take one of Lika's phrases, uh, a cocoon created hmm. by the magnetic field of our planet. I see. And the way that the energy from the sun interacts with that magnetic field and, and creates variations in our space environment is really important to all of the technologies that we've become reliant on every single day. So anything from the GPS system on your phone telling you where you are or allowing you to communicate with satellites, um, anything, anything that operates in space is subject to these variations in the environment. And it's very far-reaching, and it affects each of us every day. And it was really interesting to kind of dive into those and bring it to kind of a very public audience. So I'll, I'll add the far-reaching part of it. So what's really interesting is we, we say it up front, right? Heliophysics sort of is the science of everything that's influenced by the sun. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much everything, right? And just that knowledge of that system allows us to export it to the other world. And so just like the bubble, the magnetosphere, the cocoon, that kind of protects us, really, from these energetic particles that are streaming out uh, continuously and sometimes in great gusto Mm -hmm. from the sun. But our entire solar system, called the heliosphere, it's sort of another bubble. So that's a bubble called the heliosphere, created by the sun's magnetic field. It's kind of a fractal almost, right? That protects us from the galactic cosmic rays, which are again very energetic particles that are created in supernova explosion in in other stars, and they are populating the interstellar medium. So sun's magnetosphere called the heliosphere sort of shields us from that. And so these galactic cosmic rays uh, will change dramatically as the sun kind of goes through this maximum and minimum, you know, it kind of uh, waxes and wanes, and it's the magnetic field strength. has a cycle itself. Right, and the galactic cosmic rays will vary, and galactic cosmic rays are very important for space travel, uh, for um, spacecraft in deep space. So it's kind of adding to what he's saying. It's not just our planet, right? Everything. Right. So let me walk through that again. Okay, so the Earth has a magnetic field that protects us from the radiation blasting out from the sun, right? Most of the time. I mean, it's a leaky 
It's magnetosphere. Leaky. <laughs> yeah. Seal. Okay. And then the sun itself has its own magnetic yes. field that protects the whole solar system or yes. part of it from yes, cosmic it is. rays. Yes, it is the cosmic rays that okay. are penetrating into the heliosphere and it, it provides a shield for that. Cool, I never knew that. Interesting. So then that has implications for how you design spacecraft and future human space Absolutely. travel, I guess. Deep yeah. space. If you're traveling in deep space, whether you are a robot, whether mm-hmm. you're a spacecraft or whether you're human, and for human it's greater implication, of course, because these galactic cosmic rays are high Z ions, meaning a large atomic number. Okay. And so they can so penetrate tissues and okay. can cause uh, real damage. Extra powerful yes. and harmful. I see. What This is a little aside, but how do you define deep space? What limit is that? Um, good question. I'll, I'll give you one answer and then I'll ask uh, Ryan to take <laughs> his take. You know, it, it's, it's not like uh, we have, you know, sort of boundaries in space, right? But deep space is where we are no longer sort of protected by Earth's magnetic field. So deep okay. space, uh, very much from a human perspective. So once you leave the magnetosphere, then you are kind of exposed to everything that the sun mm-hmm. throws at us. If you're on the moon, for example, moon doesn't have an atmosphere. Right. And so you, that is deep space. All right. Do you okay. want to take a crack at it, Ryan? <laughs> I think that um, is, is a great explanation. I was just going to, to add, if we wanted to think about something topical, um, we could, you know, just at the time of recording this, yesterday we had this launch of a, of a new launch vehicle from SpaceX, this Falcon 9 Heavy. That's right. Um, yeah. And so everyone, I think, is aware that Elon Musk's dream and his vision is to send humans to Mars. And I think it's pretty telling that this is a company that is is very interested in understanding space weather because to to accomplish that one of the things that stands in the way is understanding how humans can basically survive in this environment right. for this journey to and from Mars and and Mars and differently than Earth its magnetic field is significantly weaker and it's had its atmosphere stripped away because of that and so space weather can reach all the way down to the surface and oh, the yeah. solar energy can be really impactful on the surface of Mars and it's really interesting to study how the energy from the sun creates different space weather throughout both the Earth's environment and through deep space. That's and so cool. it's, it's very kind of far-reaching in that respect as well. Do you guys consider yourselves meteorologists for the solar system? Very cool. <laughs> so, yes. In fact, um, I'd say that we are space meteorologists. Mm-hmm. I I would say that another way of describing heliophysics, you know, just to give you sort of the definition, is heliophysics is actually hybrid between astrophysics and meteorology. Really? And if you think about it, these are so diverse, the Mm -hmm. two areas of science. And that's what makes heliophysics so rich and complex and exciting. Because you're combining a field of meteorology with astrophysics and just anything can happen. So you're bringing the magnetic field from the star, its interaction, and then you're bringing meteorology. Now, terrestrial meteorology does not really deal with magnetic field, but planetary environments do. Mm -hmm. So the combination, but the ionospheric region, Again, you know, you, it has neutral 
as well as magnetic field so it just creates very complex dynamic environment it which becomes very very difficult to predict okay yeah and it's really interesting that you should bring up meteorology because i think one of the things that's going on in in heliophysics and space weather research right now is trying to grapple with a very drastically changing data landscape so Mm. we're basically starting to have more and more data available to us but those data are hard to understand together and use effectively to create new discovery for these fields. And one of the things that we're doing is looking to the field of meteorology, who has been dealing with an explosion of data for much longer than uh, someone in in the field of heliophysics. And so they develop techniques that are a little more advanced than we have uh, to, to deal with these data problems. And so looking at that field and how they've been able to effectively manage and navigate that new data landscape in their context has been really helpful for us in our field. And and I think one of the things that Lika and I have been trying to help the field push towards is embracing some of new, these new techniques from the field of data science. Yeah. Um, so being able to effectively mine and analyze these diverse and heterogeneous and complex data sets uh, is something that's that's really on the cutting edge of heliophysics research right now. That's so cool. That's so interesting when an unexpected research area helps out another. Uh, yes, uh. in fact, the word heliophysics was created. I mean, it existed as a word, but it wasn't a discipline. We created the field of heliophysics starting 2005. Our division really? at NASA wow. uh, took on the name. We used to be called Sun Earth Connection Division. And we took on Some the name called heliophysics. Okay. That changed everything. I mean, that kind of, you know, energized me to go uh, create the first textbooks in heliophysics. Mm. We actually have yeah. heliophysics textbook now. And heliophysics is just not looking at the sun as a star. Yeah. It's looking at the sun as a star and it's every nuance in terms of interaction in the interplanetary medium and every planetary environment. So it's given rise to now comparative heliophysics. And as he's talking about, Ryan was talking about, you know, using metrology uh, and understand the data assimilation component, you know, how did metrology kind of get to where it is in terms of doing uh, weather prediction. The other area where uh, we are sort of benefiting and sort of in, in the throes of this revolution happening is where artificial intelligence, you know, uh-huh. uh, deep learning, machine learning, convolution neural network have taken us in image processing. So data as sort of in situ local data is one thing, right? You have sort of basic parameters of density, velocity, magnetic field. And then you have images that come from the sun Mm -hmm. or it could come from our magnetosphere. You know, we just launched actually uh, recently a spacecraft called GOLD which is actually observing, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our geospace from space. So what AI has done through ImageNet, through classification of images, they're giving us new tools of trying to figure out how can we combine our knowledge of science and AI tools 
to kind of do better forecasting and prediction, which then goes back into the pipeline of understanding the system better. Yeah, I see. So when you talk about heterogeneous data and how do you make two kinds of data work together, could you give us some examples of that? What What are you so, facing in that? Uh, I mean, heterogeneous data is so, you know, we, we have, um, so I'll give you example from Solar Dynamics Observatory, a big spacecraft, you know, that is looking at the sun 24-7. Okay. It's, it's taking images, you know, every minute in different wavelength bands. These are huge amount of data. That's kind of giving the image of the corona in different temperature band. Okay, the corona For, is a layer uh, of the sun? Uh, yes, so yeah. corona is the outermost layer of the sun. Okay. So the sun that we look at, you know, the yellow ball, which yeah. kind of looks pretty constant, mm -hmm. is really constant in that wavelength, which is the visible wavelength. Okay. If you look at the sun in X-ray, then it's completely different. It's, it's dynamic, and, and that's what we are seeing, right? So by, by looking at images, you are actually penetrating different layers of the mm, sun because you are going through different temperature zones, for okay. example. So you can see inside when you look with a different kind and of light. And sometimes you can go deeper inside yeah. by doing sort of seismology of the sun, oh, kind wow. of getting sound waves from cool. interior. So that's one kind of data for example, right, uh, heavy on images, mm -hmm. and in order to understand them, uh, predict, you know, when you might get a solar storm requires understanding uh, these complex magnetic field regions, but we're taking images and trying to kind of get a handle on that. Now, if you take this and sort of propagate it down uh, very close to Earth, but not quite there, sort of a million mile away from Earth, it's an L1 point called Lagrange uh, point one, where Earth and Sun's gravity sort of neutralize each other. Oh, and we have spacecraft there. Mm -hmm. There, we are actually locally measuring the environment of the spacecraft. That's where we can actually uh, measure, you know, whatever the sun produced mm -hmm. and the way it propagated 93 million miles. That's the distance between sun and Earth. And what is left? You know, what are we measuring? That data is just um, sensor data, okay. not, images. not images. So yeah. completely different. You can see sort of, you know, how we kind of compare it. You know, one is like um, astrophysics studying a star in a way. And now we are actually measuring the actual impact of that yeah. and then how it interacts with our geospace environment how it interacts with our magnetosphere which is this imaginary you know magnetic field lines that comes from earth and then we go down to the next layer called the ionosphere which is where neutral particles you know get energized by x-ray and causes all these um, various space weather effects that Ryan was talking about mm -hmm. earlier. You know, disruption of communication navigation, disruption of signal for oh, GPS, yeah. uh, sometimes the fluctuation 
can create current, ground-induced current right. that can cause harm to our transformers for power grid. It kind of just goes on. Yeah, yeah. I've heard space weather events could be really destructive, right? All these things we depend on critically every day, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I that, we are realizing this more and more, right? Mm -hmm. hundred years ago, people asked me, so, well, is this a new thing Sun is doing? No. Sun is doing what it has always done. Yeah. hundred years ago, we didn't care about it uh, because we were not so technologically dependent. Now, if you think about, about our lives, you know, we don't go out without our cell phone. Uh, the younger generation <laughs> have no clue how to navigate with a map, <laughs> nope, right? Nope. So your cell phone goes off, you're lost. Right. How but did we live without this? <laughs> so if you think about it, we just intricately connected to technology. And to the and sun. And technology is affected by the sun. Yeah, yeah. In that's one it. word, basically. In a nutshell. Yeah. That sounds like the story, yeah. So when you're talking yeah. about the data, Sorry, Ryan, were you about to speak? Oh, I, I was just going to add a, another quick example to the bringing heterogeneous data together. And one of the things that's been really innovative for studying the, the near-Earth effects, so uh, Lika mentioned the ionosphere, which is the layer of our atmosphere that sits on top of where you would expect weather to happen, you know, terrestrial weather. Yeah. Um, and this region affects the propagation of radio signals through that oh. regime, so GPS is affected. Mm -hmm. um, and so while that's a, a, a big concern, we can also use how those GPS signals are affected to study the ionosphere itself. Oh, okay, neat. And so <laughs> and we can add those data, which exist everywhere, because those radio signals are propagating through the atmosphere all over the Earth. And right. so it gives us a rich data set, and we can combine that with dedicated NASA missions, such as GOLD, which Lika mentioned earlier, and a couple of other missions that have been recently launched to create better coverage of the ionosphere and start to understand these effects in a more holistic way. Yeah, that's handy for you. <laughs> All this and data exists. Th this is, yeah, I'm going to jump in because this is kind of really cool because now we are taking sort of other satellite data that were not meant for us, right? These are oh, not okay. science satellites. And we are kind of looking for ways to take those data, invert them, to figure out, you know, what does that tell us about the ionosphere? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And th these are some of the problems we are kind of um, on the verge of tackling through this um, NASA frontier development effort, which has been going on for two years. And th this is becoming really cool, sort of, you know, NASA aims to a lead on that, partnered with SETI, we are partnering with JPL, with, you yeah. know, anybody, right? It, it's basically using uh, data as they exist, formulating a question, figuring out if the data is readily available and in a way uh, that we can bring sort of students mm -hmm. to tackle this problem over an eight, eight-week period in summer oh, nice. and address some really, uh, you know, important uh, problems that are posed before us. Yeah. Do you feel like you're able to answer questions that you never would have been able to before? And that's that's exactly what we are doing. Oh. So, you know, what we have done, if, if you think of sort of um, uh, traditional way of 
doing this, you know, we will kind of try to predict and understand one solar storm, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think as scientists kind of approach it, um, taking large volume of data and sort of applying statistics, yes, you can do it, but it takes a lot of time. I see. Uh, a lot of sort of regular computational time. But if you can bring the rigor of um, machine learning, deep mm -hmm. learning, as we are trying to do, because we are dealing with massive amount of data. Sounds like it. Then, uh, you know, you can short circuit some of that mm -hmm. and kind of try to extract patterns out of that and see if those patterns make sense. You know, you can't forget about the physics. Right. We do understand lot of the physics. So you're going back and forth, kind of working with experts in AI, mm -hmm. and you're working with experts, domain experts in the area to constantly work this together to come to some point and say, did we, were we able to kind of predict something that we didn't know before or much faster yeah. than we can do, yeah, you know, faster. ordinarily. So there are many ways of looking at it. Mm -hmm. And in addition to solving these problems and answering these questions, just by looking through these different techniques, the Frontier Development Lab has helped look and develop new ways of studying heliophysics that kind of precipitate down in the community um, kind of the most valuable techniques that people can use to tackle some of these issues that we're grappling with. And I think it's a really good way of doing that is kind of identifying these really fantastic use cases hmm that show us how we can improve and change and evolve our current techniques. It aligns very well with a group here at JPL called the Data Science Working Group, who really focus on identifying use cases and letting those teach us how we can change how we work here at the lab by better embracing data science. And so I think Frontier Development Lab and, and Lika in particular are pioneers in this way, and it's, it's just a really valuable program. Could you describe Frontier Development Lab? You've used that name a couple of times, but what is that? Uh, Frontier Development Lab is kind of um, AI accelerator, oh, essentially okay. an incubation program. It started a couple of years ago in partnership with SETI mm -hmm. Institute. And so public-private partnership kind of uh, is a very important component of it. Uh, we have IBM, NVIDIA, Intel, you know, providing sort of computational resources in the yeah. form of GPUs. They are providing their experts, AI experts. And so what we do is uh, create this um, summer program for eight week period where we define, and it's not all heliophysics, and I'll give you some other examples. And we sort of bring in um, students, both in the world of AI and in the given domain mm -hmm. where we are posing the question. We have mentors for both AI and the domain. And we really pair all these people up, house them locally, and they're working you know, pretty close to, you know, uh, 10, 12 hours a day, kind mm -hmm. of tackling these problems. Yeah. And then, of course, being uh, here in the Silicon Valley, close to uh, these uh, really incredible uh, sort of professional people who are right. there to help out, uh, to come give talks. It has been a very enriching 
experience for me when I first got. So for me, this past year was the first year when I was able to bring a couple of topics in space weather. Oh, cool. And uh, I would say space weather <laughs> and, 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 and Ryan was actually a mentor, a long distance mentor. <laughs> and uh, I think he'll be here this year. So I think uh, heliophysics, space weather uh, is a very important component of uh, Frontier Development Lab. But there are other areas, right, like planetary defense, like asteroid shape modeling, where again, JPL is kind of contributing uh, hugely, or looking at lunar oh. volatile. You can think of any kind of questions, basically, and see if you have uh, the data yeah. available, and whether it's a suitable question, you know, where application of AI rigor and tools would be beneficial. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Are those all fields or topics where you generate a ton of data and right. then you'd benefit from the AI and the machine learning? And, and then think about the amount of data that NASA acquires sort mm -hmm. of every minute. Right. Constantly observing out there and back here, <laughs> looking down at the Earth. There's a lot of data out there. So this is cool. Ryan, do you... One of the things I really love about it is... A lot of what we see in the, the commercial space industry are entrepreneurs turned aerospace engineers and space scientists. And mm -hmm. the Frontier Development Lab kind of flips that on its head and it takes the domain experts and puts them in an entrepreneurial kind of environment okay. to where they can address it in a different way. And it's it's really interesting. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Like you're bringing together all the right people to move faster towards. Uh, yes, and your goals. and we were talking about interdisciplinary in the sense of heliophysics, in, in the world of Frontier Development Lab. You know, it's sort of interdisciplinary, even in a broader sense, right? It's sort of adjacent domains of science where mm -hmm. you're asking um, these questions because uh, these tools are not just for any one particular science domain you can and so these kids are kind of side by side you know kind of doing their problems learning from each other there's a huge benefit in that mm -hmm. because Oftentimes, you know, we learn something in a particular discipline, and that just doesn't get passed on to another discipline right. quickly enough. They could and also he, benefit from it, right? Yes. But they have yes. to know about it. Exactly. So yeah. the, it, it's it's actually, yeah, and an intellectual foment. It, it's a mm. wonderful environment. Very cool. So speaking of interdisciplinary subjects, at the very beginning, I remember I, I was saying, oh, so is this star physics because it's not just our sun, it's other stars. But then you corrected me a bit later about uh, heliophysics really relating to the connection between a star and other planets. It's planets, that is. But so what about other stars and other planets? Is it the same relationship? Yes, yeah, so that's exactly, you know, earlier when uh, Ryan was talking about. So heliophysics started with the concept of understanding the Sun-Earth connection. Mm -hmm. And then very quickly, you know, we have taken that and applied it to Sun-Planet connection, our planets, and they are all different. Mercury is different from mm -hmm. Mars, from Venus, from Jupiter. You can take any one, but it's not just planets, as I was saying. Right. It's Everything, everything in the solar system. It's Titan, it's moon. Moons, uh, yeah. Everything is interacting with the sun, the mm -hmm. solar wind. 
so now we have a very rich field called comparative heliophysics right hmm. where where we are able to sort of uh, compare you know does this planet have a magnetic field how does it interact with that magnetic field like as ran was saying mars has really weak and sort of sporadic magnetic field mm-hmm. so it's not a good bubble protecting it right. and and there are consequences of that mercury is completely different moon has absolutely no environment you know we are planning to go back there so we have to think about what the solar radiation will do right um, absolutely now if we take this knowledge this complex sort of understanding of the physics of a star as a star mm-hmm. understanding a planet as a planet now i'm talk- taking it to the exo world and then and, yeah. and then you kind of couple them together to see what they produce so when you ask the question of habitability i would say habitability is not just uh the zone as we are often used to okay. saying right the goldilocks zone, the goldilocks zone which only point. kind of specifies kind of its distance from the parent star yeah. so that's But, that's a zone where a planet might have water could conceivably have that's liquid right. water right right okay. but that's not enough you have to have a right kind of interaction between the planetary atmosphere and the star that kind of controls it so you could have water but you know your atmosphere could be ripped off by um, you know storms so strong and that's what we are finding out so there are many conditions that have to be right Yeah, uh, to define yeah. what habitability is I and see. that's kind of how we are extending sort of heliophysics into the exoplanet exostellar environment i would say how exciting is that stuff you work on ryan i haven't done much exoplanet space weather research but i know that that's a budding field of of research right now um it's going to become even more important as we start to identify more and more of these Um, planets revolve or orbiting in their around their sun in uh, this habitable zone um, so taking the diverse interactions that we observe here in our own solar system and extrapolating those and looking at what the conditions are in the solar systems that we observe mm-hmm. is is very exciting and I think it's a really a really good area for heliophysics to expand in in fact a lot of our models you know models that the community have uh, developed, are already being retooled mm-hmm. for the exoplanet world. I see. Yeah, so does this mean that you know, okay, you know how our sun behaves, you know that the earth is at this distance, so it receives this much radiation, other factors and analyses like that. You can look at a star out there, say it's this big, I know it's probably releasing this amount of radiation. And look, I found a planet at X distance away. Is that the kind of yes, and comparison? We, so believe it or not, we have models kind of showing that. So okay. I, I told you about about the Living with a Star program, right? Mm-hmm. So it is just really, I mean, this is what scientists will do. So someone, you know, a couple of years ago came up with this small program called Living with a Red Dwarf. Oh. Red Dwarf <laughs> Star. Okay. essentially and red dwarf stars are very different from the sun because of its uh, convective zone and larger s- star po- spots and so it produces you know bigger more lethal uh, star storms and okay. and then you put a planet 
sort of in the habitable zone and ask the question, you know, what kind of interaction would this mm-hmm. planet have? And you can see that from, these are models, simulations. Mm-hmm. You can see that um, such, a, such a planet would have its atmosphere ripped yeah, I see. by the, uh, you know, storms produced by the star. So th- there's just room for sort of lot of imagination in uh, trying out different kinds of simulations and models to figure out, you know, what are those preconditions for yeah. habitability. That's right. And I was just going to add that our understanding of these exoplanetary systems are kind of data-starved at the moment. Uh, we kind of right. have very limited information and ability to study them, but as our space technology gets much more sophisticated uh, with new missions, even ones that are coming up like the James Webb Space Telescope, mm-hmm. we're going to know much more about these systems, and that's going to inform our development of these space weather models in exoplanetary systems that to the point that where they can really start to tell us about the habitability of these planets and just the interactions in general that we're observing. Yeah, and we've been talking about habitability, but can we say that that aids us in our search for life beyond Earth? It's a good question, right? I mean, we are the only sort of prototype of life we know <laughs> of, yeah. and, and uh, we know what our planet offers. I mean, I often ask the question, is a magnetosphere kind of um, critical need to have a sustained planetary environment and is yeah. that necessary yeah. to for, for conditions of life to right. emerge. To have but a that, magnetic yeah. field that protects the planet. Exactly. Yeah. But that kind of presupposes that, you know, I, I can only imagine life of our kind. Mm-hmm. I mean, life mm-hmm. could be so many other things. That's so I just don't know. Right. So what can I say? Right. Well, we don't know. But I suppose it would be reasonable to, if we're starting to look it's, for life as we know it. You would want to find a planet that was not overly blasted with radiation. From right. Just like we look for water. Right. Because right. we know water is a precondition. Again, it, it's kind of the kind of life we are. Yeah. It's a starting point. Right. Yes, it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Where, yeah. This is so interesting. So we've heard a lot about the advantages that all of this data will bring the field of heliophysics, but what what is it going to take to be able to use all this data? Are there challenges that you guys need to overcome first? Absolutely. I, I think it's it's really important to note that in the field of space science, people are feeling increasingly ill-equipped to utilize these new techniques of hmm. statistical learning and machine learning effectively and to effectively utilize the vast amounts of data. And so... I think it's really important to also realize that we need to create programs that train space scientists and engineers Mm -hmm. in these new techniques and also promote interdisciplinary collaboration so that computer scientists and space scientists and many different fields are working together to bring all of this knowledge into one place. And I would say that um, NASA Frontier Development Lab is really taking those first uh, baby steps mm-hmm. by actually bringing the agile minds of young researchers mm-hmm. to kind of do that, even as we bring, uh, you know, senior mentors to guide them. That's so exciting. It sounds like you guys are in the right place at the right time to make things happen. It's been That's fun. It. And it's like we said at the beginning, no, nobody works alone anymore, right? It's across nope. disciplines, got to come together. 
There's so much to learn. It's exciting. Well, thank you both for joining us. I learned so much today. Really interesting. Thank you very much. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you. You've been listening to the NASA and Silicon Valley podcast. Remember that we are a NASA podcast, but we're not the only NASA podcast. So don't forget to check out our friends at Houston We Have a Podcast. There's also Gravity Assist. There's This Week at NASA. And if you're a music fan, don't forget to check out Third Rock Radio. The best way to capture all of the content is to subscribe to our RSS feed called NASA Casts, or visit the NASA app on iOS, Android, or anywhere you find your apps. Thank you.